The Startup to Scale-Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. So I'm delighted to welcome uh, Carlos Ferre to uh, today's show. Uh, Carlos is a general partner at uh, Nauta Capital, uh, a European enterprise software venture capital fund. And he's invested in companies like Be My Eye, Brandwatch, and ChannelSight. Uh, previously, Carlos headed up the uh, private equity and VC division at uh, Riva y Garcia, a uh, Spanish investment bank. So, uh, Carlos, a very warm welcome to today's show. Thank you very much, Gary. Thank you. It's a pleasure. You're welcome. So, Carlos, just to kick things off, how did you start your journey into the world of uh, venture capital? What were the trigger points for you? Yeah, actually, that was a long time ago. It's, it's now 20, around yeah, 19, 20 years in the battle, I'd say. So, uh, yeah, I was coming from corporate positions, first in defense, then in also in the US. Then I came back to Europe in the telco space when the telecommunication monopolies were ending. And I joined a challenger that was back in Spain. And, you know, I always had had in my mind, uh, I wanted to be in VC. As you know, it's not, it's not an easy industry to get into. I was very young. I was, you know, 27, 28 at that point. And, and I had an opportunity to run a very small fund. We're talking about pre-bubble. So that was before 2000. So it was a fund that actually was invested in e-commerce and they wanted to turn around into software. That was my passion. So I took that challenge. It went very well. And we built a management company at that point, uh, starting from 3 million under management to more than 200 million in less than seven years. And that, that was my start in the industry. That was even before Nauta existed. So uh, then everything converged into Nauta, where we are, as you know, software specialist investors and pan-European investor. How have you seen the world of venture capital evolve over the last two decades? I think it's very interesting because we, well, when I started, it was everything about the expectations, maybe the unrealistic initial expectations around in the internet, right? So you remember, we talk a lot about the bubbles and, and what happened in 2000 and then what happened again in 2007. And clearly those were two very different explosions, okay? Uh, or drawbacks. One, one was based on those unrealistic expectations that actually then really materialized, but, but just a bit later. But but the bubble was, you know, was 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 due to that. And it was a pure, I wouldn't call technology explosion. It was more the expectations on the e-commerce. Actually, the technology companies, the pure software companies were not really affected and, and not, not really the funds that were were very specialist on those types of investments. And then so I saw that explosion coming in, in in Europe. I was at that point in Spain and that came later. So it was it was very harsh, frankly. But then we had uh, a tremendous period where actually you saw the first European funds um, become bigger and bigger. Um, and you had, uh, you know, out of London mainly, getting all the money from from the fund of funds that were previously investing in mainly in growth and private equity, and they were getting the first experiences within VC. So between that, I'd say 2002, three, it was a golden period for, for raising at that point. We grew ourselves also at that point, but, but in Europe, you saw that happening in London a lot. And then, you know, a wall came, a very, very high wall, which was, was 2007 and eight and nine, where, where we had 
call it the financial crisis. Okay? And that didn't affect technology, but it affected everyone that wanted to raise money. You know, money hides when these issues happen, and, and, and it, was, it was pretty dramatic at that point. In 2009, I think we were the only fund together with another one that raised more than 100 million in pure venture at Nauta in that year. And it was after a very difficult year in 2007. So then we had a period where there was not a lot of money, but the quality of entrepreneurs was amazing because through the crackdown, people had to find new experiences and, and companies were created around new concepts. So it was, it was great to have the money in that period. So that was, and still today, it was a very difficult vintage to get the money, but a very good vintage for those that we had it. And since then, we've seen a couple of things happening. One is many management companies actually not being able to raise more than two funds or three. We always say in our industry that, that the real test is raising the third fund because the first fund, you raise it if you know people. The second fund, usually if the winds are blowing into your direction, so in the right direction, basically, if you've not done enough mistakes, you raise a second fund. The problem is the third fund because you really have to, to show very strong performance. And actually, when you look at the European landscape, so many management companies actually never made the third fund. And that happened around those years. So we've had a lack of funding for a long time of the very old traditional funds. We at Nauta were, were able to raise again in 2016, thanks to a great performance of our previous two funds. And we raised for us a record 155 million. So then there's another iteration in the industry, I'd say, which, which is in 2014 and 16 where we have all the Brexit. And at that point, I was already in the UK. So I moved, as you know, I moved in 2012, where we set up the group here. Until we were nine people already here. But, but at that point, I, I was the only one moving into the UK. And it was hard to raise at that point. So we had things like the biggest investor in Europe, when we think about this year, which is the European Investment Fund, they stopped investments in UK. So that was, that was dramatic for every single UK management company, and that lasted a couple of years. And then you had uh, a very large government investor as the British Business Bank, which is actually one of our anchor investors, together with the European Investment Fund, that actually started investing very intensely in the UK uh, with a new 2.5 billion endorsement from the government. You saw, again, the money flowing into VC. So, you know, it's been a, an amazing journey over 20 years. And we've seen many new management companies emerging over these ups and downs. And you mentioned that after the financial crisis, there was not a lot of money around, but the quality of entrepreneurs was amazing. How does that compare with the situation you see today? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's always hard to compare, right? I think that scarcity brings quality. It's always like that, but it's not only on the entrepreneurs, but it's also on, on the VCs. Many people forget that we as VCs uh, face the same issues as our technology entrepreneurs because we have to raise a fund. So we have to pitch our investment plan, okay, our business plan, you know, and we go to hundreds of investors. So I think that the quality comes with scarcity also in the VC side. On the entrepreneur side, I think that at that point, there was really dramatic. You saw the corporate shrinking everywhere and you see people coming out and, you know, from spin-offs to people creating new companies from their what, what they had learned at their corporate. So I think that quality was just amazing. Frankly, I see the quality again now. It's, we've not had anything similar to what happened in 2007, but I think that all the 
tradition that the venture capital industry has gained over the last 20 years in Europe has also caused that there are more investors. I mean, it's better known everywhere. I continue to think that talent happens actually everywhere. Talent does not only happen in the big hubs like the Valley or even London. You have a great talent in sub-hubs, talent that actually then is ready to move when the market evidence is strong enough into the hubs. And, and actually, that's what we do. As a multi-location, purely multi-location pan-European fund, we, we, we have different hubs, but we also invest in sub-hubs that are close to our hub. And then our, our job is to move that quality entrepreneur or the teams to where the market is at the right moment. Uh, one of the mistakes that we've seen is that teams actually try to move too quickly. And this usually involves spending too much money. I'd say, you know, back to your question, quality is good as it was at that point for different triggers, uh, I'd say. What's different about Nalta? What do you do differently to other European VC funds? Yeah, I think the first thing is that we are specialists. So we, we, we know what we know and uh, we try to get better at that. When we raise a fund, we're very, very precise to our LPs on what we are getting better on. They invest on us because they buy that precise thesis, which is around capital-efficient software companies. Okay, so we really want to make sure that our entrepreneurs think the same way. We our challenge is to get to, you know, understand if that's going to be the truth going forward, and and it's very hard to determine. Okay, so what's that for us? We just believe that companies. It's very hard to know very quickly which are going to be your winners. There's an old saying in BC that you have to put the money in the right place and forget about the ones that are not going to produce. And I totally buy that. My only comment on that is that it's very hard to understand very early in the play which, are, which is going to be the one, especially when you're talking about B2B. That's why we think we have to be, uh, the word for me is persistence. So as long as value proposition is fine and the market, addressable market is there and the time to market makes sense, and the team is up, is up to what they need to become a leader, you should be supporting that company. And it takes a bit of time. Then when you have enough market evidence, but not before, is when you have to push very, very hard and with acceleration. We think that, that many funds artificially accelerate growth of companies, which to some extent in certain segments you can actually do. doesn't mean that you're creating a, a very strong foundation for that company. And that's why the mortality rate goes up very quickly. We just think that that acceleration has to come when you're ready, okay? when you have enough market evidence. So with the first couple of million, three million, we're very conscious that company needs to get to enough level of revenues, ideally four or five million. At that point is when you have enough number of customers, enough information to go and, and raise a bigger round okay? that, that we will always follow on. We will find the right investor to take it to the next level. And then it's going to be maybe a 10, 15 million round, but only when you've done enough in the company. Otherwise, you're creating false expectations on companies, you're inflating valuations, et cetera. We're not, we're not up to that. So, th so that's one characteristic. The second characteristic is that we continue to believe that being close to the entrepreneur is very important and being close to the full origination is absolutely the key. So that's why we are building a multiple hubs. Okay, so... You have two types of funds. Those funds that are born in a hub, main hub. So, so think about any fund that's born naturally in London, for instance. By being in London, they have uh, access to a fantastic uh, deal flow. But actually, when you look at the numbers of the majority of funds, they really devote more than, say, 50% of their money into companies that are not actually 
in London or even in the UK. And actually, when you look at the UK, that there's a vast majority that, that actually is only in London. When you think about the UK, there are many, many hubs. If deal flow is so important, how actually do these funds access that deal flow? And, and there are many explanations to that. Okay, So you have local funds that may bring you deals. You can send people over. You can have a specialist sitting in London and actually knows a market. That works, but we think only to a certain extent if you want to build something really scalable for the future. So when we try to explain that to our investors, we've actually found that the best way is to have local people in local hubs. That's why we have different hubs. So we have a, a very strong London hub. We have now nine people here. We have a, a also a very strong hub in, in Barcelona, and we cover Southern Europe from there. And we also have a very strong team there, plus operations. And we have a, a strong hub in, in Munich, which we've launched recently with now two people, What's going to grow similar to the other hubs we have. So this way, we have local people, you know, with their families there, people that pay taxes there, people that know the ecosystem, people that don't have to travel to places, people that go to the events every night without having to organize a, a very complex agenda. So that gives us, we think, an edge. We are local in every hub where we invest out, and we are pan-European. So that's another strong differentiation that I think NATO brings on the table. So we've been talking mostly, or in fact entirely, about Europe up until now. You mentioned when we last spoke that you've seen European enterprise software ventures making mistakes when expanding abroad, specifically when expanding into the States. So I'd love to hear more about the approach you're now taking when your portfolio companies look to build a presence in the States. Yes, absolutely. And we've, we've done mistakes there too. Okay. So, so we, we also learn from mistakes. And I think that the main mistake has been, again, around capital inefficiency that the majority of companies many times have when they move to a difficult market like the US. I mean, it's very clear that the US is a bigger market. It's a market that moves quicker. It's a market where the, the size of the deals that our companies can close are bigger. This makes it a very, very attractive market. Okay. And usually our companies, you know, from the UK or from Europe, look west, look first to the US, and maybe after that, they look to Asia. Okay, so the issue is that, and we've done that before, wrongly, we think in some companies where you have that tremendous opportunity there, you have a, a little bit of, a, of, of, of traction in, in Europe, and then you think that you can transplant that success into the US very quickly. And sometimes that means that you start operations there, hiring uh, senior people, local people there, without local support, usually. The problem is that you're going to spend a lot of money very quickly. The people you're going to hire there usually will not carry the necessary DNA that a, an early stage company needs in that precious moment. Those very senior people, yes, of course, they, in, in a very legitimate way, they will embrace that opportunity. But for them, it's more an option that, than an opportunity. They will, they will put to play their resources in a record time if it works, that's perfect. But in many occasions, it just doesn't work because the company doesn't have enough traction to, to sell in, in, in the US. And then those people may fly. Okay, so what really happens to that early stage company is that it has spent an enormous amount of energy and time with discussions at the board, how you should go to the US with the hirings, which take months. You have to give months of, of a trial to, those, to that team in the US, which maybe it's six, nine months then you realize it has been the wrong move and then you have to start over again which will take again 6 months okay and that and that may 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 mean that you've lost a portion of the opportunity of the window 
So a way, a way that that to avoid those issues and, and very much in line with our capital efficiency uh, mentality, how we do it is the following, and we've done it in several occasions. And it, and again, it's not for every company, but it has worked very well for us. Company has to get enough traction in Europe before they they really think on the US. Actually, with you know with with SaaS and bond sales models, uh, our companies get customers in the US without having to be there, which gives enough indication of of the market. Once we have enough case studies in Europe that we can transplant there, what we actually do is that we take our best people, usually best salespeople, and we move, we move them there. So yes, it's a risk for the native country because you're extracting the best people, maybe the, the, the VP of sales, okay? But actually, he has done very well. If he's done well, he, he will have created already a structure that can work very well in the native country. And then you move him to the most interesting one, which is the U.S., by doing that, you're carrying over the Atlantic, the DNA of the company. So it's someone that has been from, for years with you that has done successfully sales, has built the company you know, up to 5 million revenues, whatever. And then he's able to tell there. The second thing we do is that, that the next people that are going to move usually are also locals from the native country, young people, hungry people that see that as, that's as a promotion, as an opportunity. So then that way we build a cell in the U.S., that team is usually able to sell several millions. I mean, they are profitable from day one because you've not overspent. And then is when we begin hiring locally there. Why? Because then you can target senior people that see already something that really makes a lot of sense there. It's a team of people already that has brought the DNA, that has customers already. So it's not such an option for them. It's more a reality. That way, we've got some companies an example is, is, for instance, one of our investments, Brandwatch, that I remember when we invested in the company, there was only one guy in the US that actually was the VP of sales from Brighton that had moved over to New York. And I remember over the diligence interviewing him in New York, and he was sitting in a 10 square meter room within a partner in New York. Over time, we've created a, a 60 plus person company there, okay, that today you know, has more, more revenues coming from the US than from Europe. And that was created from scratch, capital efficient from day one, profitable from day one. The first 10 people that moved there came from Europe. Today, absolutely, the majority are U.S. locals. So that's a way to do it. I mean, again, it's not for every company, but I think it reduces the risk of over-investing too early in a market that actually you don't know very well. That's the way we've done it. I like this idea of transplanting your DNA into North America and uh... Uh, I've seen a few companies, a few of our clients succeed with that approach. So good that you're uh, encouraging that across your portfolio. Now, I'd love to hear about your most recent portfolio investment. Who have you recently invested in? Maybe it's been publicly disclosed, maybe not. And why did you choose that particular company, that particular technology or, or team to invest in? Sure. Every of our funds has teams, okay? So we are, at the end of the day, we're technology analysts also, and, and we have to analyze technology a little bit as a, as a commodity, but look at what segments are going to be disrupted massively. And so you're going to see in every fund a little bit of a theme. And not every company is going to be around that theme, but, but you're going to see some companies always with lots of synergies around it, okay? So one of the themes we have picked in the recent fund has been the massive transformation that the retail industry is facing. And we depicted that already years ago. Uh, we have, um, you know, this is a more than whatever, 50 trillion 
dollar market that actually is being transformed, where still more than 80% of the revenues come offline. This means offline retailers, and 20% comes online. The growth rate of online clearly uh, surpasses the one of offline, but it's very clear that the offline is not going to disappear. So there's a battle from the online to become more efficient, where you have very clear problems around cost of acquisition, customer experience, conversion, etc. So any technology that, that helps to do that better is very interesting to us. And we have several companies there, like, like ChannelSide, like CloudAQ, like, like Promote, IQ, etc. And then you have companies that are actually helping the offline retailers to do their job better. But why? Because they still have the 80%. They have to defend themselves. They are not going to surrender and they are being attacked by the online and actually online becoming offline, like Amazon, for instance. Okay, So any technology helping them to do their job better is very interesting to us. And here we have different places like Nextail, like Geoblink, recently Mishipay, also companies like BMI you were mentioning before, helping retailers offline, etc. So one of the latest investments that we've done in, in these uh, or a couple of them this fund has been, for instance, Mishipay. Mishipay, which frankly was a little bit of an exception for us because it was very early when we did the investment and actually it has, it has grown quite a bit. But because we're mainly Series A investors, but that company at that point was seeking a seed round. We converted you know, into a seed plus or A minus, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we followed it for a year. It was square into our thesis, helping retailers to better their job. In their world, one of the key problems that offline retailers have is losing revenues because it's not very efficient to queue. So the last bit of your customer experience when you have to pay for the good you're purchasing is a nightmare. It's calculated that around 200 billion are lost in revenues for three-minute lines in offline retailers. And there's a, a race to solve that. And we think that this is the best company we've seen doing that. So with only software, we're able to Imagine yourself getting into a shop, you like, uh, say, a jacket, and you know there's an RFID tag there. So you will take your mobile, you're going to scan that, you're going you're gonna to be able to pay, and that's quite trivial. But what we do very differently is that uh, with that same click, we're going to disconnect any security control around that good. So you are able actually to get into the shop, get your good, pay, and check out, and leave the shop without a single interaction with anyone at the shop, okay? So that dramatically reduces that problem. So those billions in revenues that are now lost due to these three to five or to whatever number of minutes you have to wait, just can actually have zero weight. So to us, that is a dramatic transformation, right? I mean, imagine when there was only cash and we could only pay cash in retailers. One day someone came with a credit card and it was automatic. Uh, the credit card that the retailer that didn't have a credit card didn't offer you to pay uh, with a credit card it was going out of business, okay? You were, as a customer, you wanted that. So imagine now a retailer that actually offers you that excellent experience where you can actually, if you want to talk to people, you can do it. But if you want to check out without any, any friction, you can also do it. You're going to ask that everywhere. So this is a massive transformation that's going on. You have someone like Amazon that actually is doing that, okay? And, and you have the Amazon Go experience. But guess what? You, you need lots of hardware. You need lots of tons of sensors, of cameras to do that. So how quick is that going to deploy on retailers that are not Amazon is, is a question mark with software only. So the infrastructure investment is close to zero. That's why we invested in that company. So that's an example of one of our latest. 
That sounds absolutely ideal for me. I uh, despise going <laughs> into shops and dealing with the uh, the queues and the um, sometimes rather tedious sales assistants. So um, that sounds like the, uh, the perfect solution for someone like me. Let's talk about the future. We've mostly focused on the present and the past. So let's talk about the future for a few moments. What are your plans for now to going forward? What's your vision for the next three to four years? We are investing our third fund, which was, for us, it was a 50% bigger than the previous one. We've, uh, we're still halfway through. We're investing quickly. We've invested in 15 companies already out of this fund in the last year and a half. We are 24 people. Okay, So by doing multi-location means that we have different investment teams. That gives us scale. That gives us speed. And that gives us a capacity to look at many deals at the same time in different geographies with local people. So we think that that we're going to invest around uh, 10 to 15 companies more in the next year and a half, more or less. That will bring this fund to you know close to 30 companies, which is ideal to us, or between, between 25 and 30, I'd say. Uh, and then logically, you know, ABC then, then raises another fund. Okay, So frankly, nothing different to what we have done. So we're getting more and more religious in our thesis. So it's going to be more around capital efficiency. It's going to be more around getting the right disruption out of Europe and moving it to, to the bigger hubs like the US. We're looking very closely to Asia. As I said before, it's very hard. It's very hard for European young companies to sell in, in Asia. There are very few examples of companies that successfully have done that. A way for us to tackle that is uh, to do it from, from the top, which means that in the previous fund, we brought uh, our first actually Asian investor. It's, it's a, ch- a very well-known Chinese fund of funds. And we are using their network to help our companies to land in Asia. So maybe an objective would be to do more of that, to help our companies through our network and our LP networks to attack that difficult geography, but do more of the same. Uh, As I said, same type of companies, pick new themes maybe that are going to be the themes that we are going to be considering, the ones disrupting old industries that need uh, digitalization quickly and continue to be uh, faithful to the, our pan-European thesis. Awesome. Sounds like uh, an exciting future for Nauta and for the portfolio. Carlos, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your uh, insights into capital efficiency, tech startup hubs, and, uh, and US expansion. Thanks again for your time, and I wish you and everybody involved with the fund and the portfolio huge success over the coming years. Thank you, Gary. It's been a pleasure and thanks for counting on us and having us with you this morning. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent.